Hello, spy thriller fans, and welcome to Susan Willett's The Wayward Spy. I am Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of The Wayward Spy for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! I'll be introducing you to each of our episodes of Susan Willett's The Wayward Spy, a fast-paced spy thriller set in Washington, D.C. and the Republic of Georgia, starring an intrepid intelligence analyst and a cast of formidable foes, including corrupt American officials, the Russian mafia, and Chechen terrorists. This unputdownable book will have you ready to go undercover on your own missions and take down bad guys in no time. It's a book to live in. When her fiancé, a CIA operative accused of treason, is killed overseas, intelligence analyst Maggie Jenkins smells a cover-up and sets out to clear his name. Maggie disobeys direct orders and travels to Tbilisi, Georgia, to follow a trail littered with secrets and lies, corruption and deceit. She risks her own life to expose the terrorist threat emanating from the intersection where the Russian mafia, Chechen rebels, Al-Qaeda, and U.S. government officials meet. From the halls of power in Washington, D.C., to the political chaos of the former Soviet Union, Maggie must confront players from the intelligence, political, and criminal worlds who will do anything to stop her. How far will Maggie go to uncover the truth? Well, we're about to find out. Cat Publishing presents The Wayward Spy by Susan Ouellet, narrated by Aaron Bennett. For Elaine Ash, a superb freelance editor and friend, had you not persuaded me to dust off this manuscript, I wouldn't be a published author today. Your vision and persistence brought this story to life. For that, I'm eternally grateful. All statements of fact, opinion, or analysis expressed in The Wayward Spy are those of the author and do not reflect the official positions or views of the CIA or any other U.S. government agency. Nothing in the contents should be construed as asserting or implying U.S. government authentication of information or agency endorsement of the author's views, this material has been reviewed by the CIA to prevent the disclosure of classified information. Tbilisi is the capital of the country of Georgia. To the north lies Russia. To the south lie Turkey, 
Armenia, and Azerbaijan. This birthplace of Joseph Stalin has suffered periodic eruptions of unrest, corruption, and Russian meddling since gaining independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Prologue, Tbilisi, Georgia. The assassin slid the gray canvas bag onto an empty chair to the right. With a final glance at the men seated at the adjacent table, their backs to her, she exited the cafe's sun-drenched atrium. Her client had wanted something more dramatic, like a car bomb. But with such short notice, she'd been forced to improvise with the materials on hand. The client wouldn't care. Dead was dead. After crossing the busy street, she looked over her shoulder. The targets were standing, shaking hands. She was supposed to be further away before dialing the pre-programmed number, but she had to act before they separated. Slipping a hand into her purse, she pulled out the cell phone and hit the number three. The atrium, a glass-enclosed outdoor dining area at the popular cafe, exploded into a million tiny shards. A chair flew through the air, landing on the sidewalk in front of the building. Car alarms wailed. Then people. The American, partially pinned under a mangled metal table, lay still, bleeding profusely from what remained of his right thigh. The other man was motionless, face down on the sidewalk. Crowds gathered on the street as the acrid smoke from the bomb began to dissipate. When sirens sounded in the distance, the assassin slipped away from the panicked crowd. Under ordinary circumstances, heads turned at the sight of her lithe body, high cheekbones, and striking olive-colored eyes. Today, she was shrouded in a shabby overcoat, oversized wool hat, and dark sunglasses. The getup made her feel detached from herself, as if someone else had executed the attack. The woman turned into the alley where she'd parked hours before. She removed the sunglasses and pulled the cap from her head, unleashing a thick mane of lush black hair. With a final glance behind her, she smiled. By all measures, it had been a successful morning. Chapter One House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence U.S. Capitol Building, November 2003. Maggie Jenkins hurried across the stone pavers outside the east front of the U.S. Capitol Building. The autumn wind was especially biting before sunrise. She ducked into an arched entryway to the left of towering marble stairs, tugged open the heavy wooden door, and slipped inside just before a sudden gust slammed it shut behind her. She glanced left at a plaque honoring two Capitol Hill police officers who'd been gunned down by a madman in that very spot five years earlier. Until the chaos of September 11, 2001, she couldn't have imagined a more horrific day on the Hill. Morning, miss. The officer's greeting pulled her back to the present. Morning. She plopped her Kate Spade satchel on the X-ray machine's conveyor belt and passed through the metal detector. The officer's attention turned to the machine's video screen, 
ID, please. Maggie fished her badge from the pocket of her black trench coat. Getting to work so early meant that it was going to be a long day. But working regular nine to five hours hadn't been an option for months. There'd been one major national security episode after another this year, from the US invasion of Iraq to the ongoing manhunt for Saddam Hussein. And besides, the longer she stayed at work, the less time she spent at home, alone and missing Steve. Three months left on his overseas tour. It felt more like three years. The officer nodded as Maggie snatched her purse and headed for the crypt. She paused, savoring the silence in the dimly lit cavernous room. Soon enough, ringing phones, humming computers, and whirring copy machines would replace the hush. Her heels clicked across the smooth stone floor as she made her way to the elevator on the far left. Every now and then, wandering tourists would mistake this elevator for a public one. They'd soon discover that it had a sole destination, a rather unremarkable hallway in the attic of the Capitol building. Inside the car, Maggie repeatedly punched the up button. A minute later, the old doors groaned open, depositing her 40 feet from the entrance to the House Intelligence Committee office. She mumbled a greeting to the night guard, who buzzed her through the main door. The hearing room directly ahead was dark. She opted for the lit corridor that wound its way around the backside of the windowless space. Uninspiring framed prints of the nation's capital dotted the tan, soundproof, textured walls. A little further up the hall, her boss Frank Reynolds ducked into his office, shutting the door behind him. Odd, he usually wasn't in before 8 a.m. She shrugged and turned into the second office on the left, a small space with worn government issue gray carpeting and walls painted to match. Maggie hung her coat and purse on the coat rack in the corner, slid into her chair, and fired up the compact desktop computer. She grabbed a pad of paper and wrote out her to-do list. Finish chairman's briefing book for today's hearing. Ask agency for latest intel on Putin. Call mom. Wedding dress fitting moved to December 4th. The computer screen brightened from black to green. She logged in, opened the briefing document, and picked up where she'd left off last Friday. Could I speak with you a minute? She glanced up, then returned her gaze to the monitor. You're here early, Frank. What's up? Maggie. She was racing against a deadline. Can it wait a bit? Have to finish this. The committee's chairman needed the briefing book ASAP. Maggie, repeated Frank. She saved the document and swiveled in her chair. Sorry. She paused startled by the sudden appearance of another man next to him, the CIA's deputy director of operations. Warner? She glanced at the day planner on her desk. Had she forgotten an important meeting? Can we talk? Warner Thompson approached her desk. He was the CIA's spy master, a powerful man whose calendar was filled with urgent matters of national security. What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be in Langley? We need to talk. She stood, her thighs pressed against the edge of the desk. Warner looked like he hadn't slept, 
She stared back at him, suddenly aware how odd it was that her fiancé's boss was in her office. Is everything okay? A sudden weakness swept over her. Warner closed his eyes for a moment, as if to collect himself. I don't know how to say this. Say what? She said as she backed against the chair and sank into it. Maggie's thoughts occupied two opposing camps engaged in battle. The side that fought hardest was the one insisting Steve was fine. Of course he was. He wasn't in Iraq or Afghanistan. He wasn't dodging mortar attacks and suicide bombers. Steve was a spy, a silent soldier, fighting the country's enemies in the shadows where it was safer. But then there was the other side, the one that knew. She just knew. Warner knelt beside her. I'm so, so sorry. His voice cracked. I came right over as soon as I got the call. Maggie closed her eyes. A supersonic slideshow of images flashed through her mind. Steve on his motorcycle, his lopsided grin, the day he proposed, her wedding dress, news footage of soldiers' flag-draped caskets, the memorial wall at CIA headquarters, all those stars for the CIA's dead. Not Steve, no star, not dead. It's a mistake. She shook her head. Maybe he's out with an asset and can't report in. Words tumbled from her mouth. You know how Steve gets when he's in the middle of something big. No, Maggie, it's not. I'm so sorry. She looked at Frank. He glanced away. She fixed her eyes on Warner's. What are you saying? He cleared his throat. There was an explosion at a cafe in Tbilisi. We don't know if Steve was the intended target. It could have been mistaken identity or simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He took Maggie's hands in his. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who's we? What? She freed her hands and clasped them together. You said, we don't know if Steve was the intended target. Who's we? The Tbilisi station chief and I. Her insides constricted, as if a seizure and a heart attack had joined forces against her. So the station chief thinks someone killed Steve? The question sounded absurd. These kinds of things happen to other people. Warner nodded and rubbed his face with trembling hands. They have his body at the embassy. There was nothing they could do. It was too late. Maggie heard a moan. When the moan turned into a wail, she realized it was coming from inside of her. Chapter Two The ringing telephone startled Maggie from a fitful nap. Her gaze flitted around, taking in the bedside clock. For a second, she thought she'd slept through the wake. She ignored the phone, rolled onto her side, and stared at the empty half of the bed. Steve sighed. Her fingers traced the outline of his pillow, the spot where he'd last kissed her before leaving for his 4 a.m. flight to Tbilisi. I'll be back, 
I promise, Maggie, he'd whispered. For the last eight months, it had been just her in the house, yet she'd never felt truly alone. There'd been calls from Steve. She'd occupied herself working long hours and taking marathon runs on the trail. All helped fill the temporary emptiness until his return. Now, the emptiness was endless. There was no one, nothing to look forward to, nothing to fill the void. Kate, her friend from their CIA days together, had offered to stay over for a couple of nights, but then something came up with her husband. Her best friend from college couldn't make the trip from Boston. She was overdue with her second baby. Old high school friends left sympathetic voicemails, but never called back. Everyone was busy. They were married, having babies, leading normal lives. And when you couldn't tell your girlfriends anything true about your future husband, it was much easier to withdraw, to protect Steve, to keep his secrets secret. Other than Kate, none of her friends had a clue what he actually did for a living. Her head was pounding. She didn't need a mirror to tell her what days of sobbing had done to her face. Her right hand found the damp face cloth on the floor beside the bed. Five minutes of cool moisture probably wouldn't help much, but it was better than nothing. And she had to pull herself together before her parents flew into town. Her stomach was in turmoil at the thought of seeing Steve's body. The funeral home had assured her that his face was in good condition, and that no one would be able to see the destruction the bomb had wrought on the rest of his body. Maggie let out a guttural scream and threw the face cloth across the room. It landed with an unsatisfying splat against the wall. Downstairs, the doorbell chimed. Maggie groaned and dragged herself from the bed. She tugged the black dress from the hanger and slid it over a silk slip and a pair of black stockings. Shoes, where are my shoes? The doorbell chimed again as she rifled through a jumble of high heels on the closet floor. Just a second, she muttered, abandoning the shoes and scampering downstairs. When she opened the front door, bitter wind greeted her with a slap. Maggie squinted up at her visitor. You look exhausted, Warner. Warner shook sleet from an umbrella and wiped his polished wingtips on the sodden welcome mat. And I feel like hell. His gray flecked eyes searched her face. How are you? She shivered against the cold. Hell pretty much sums it up. Look, I, can we talk for a few minutes? Her throat tightened. Of course, come in. She was due at the funeral home in an hour. I have a few minutes. Maggie ushered him into the living room. The soft sage-colored walls felt naked, cold. Assorted frames stood stacked in the corner waiting to be rehung. Their formal engagement photo lay atop the pile. A light film of dust muted her fiery hair and his bright eyes. Steve was supposed to hang the pictures. That was the deal. If she painted the walls, he'd put it all back together when he came home. In the kitchen, she swallowed the lump in her throat and turned to Warner. Coffee, she offered. We have time. 
I was going to pick my parents up at Dulles, but their flight was delayed. Snow. So they'll take a cab directly to the funeral home, she rambled, certain if she stopped talking, she'd collapse in a heap. They'll be landing soon. I'll send a car. I should be the one. Warner raised his hand. No, consider it done. Okay. She turned toward the stove. How about that coffee? Or tea? Herbal? Decaf? The burner clicked and hissed under the copper kettle. Save yourself the trouble. I'm fine. He stared out the window into the darkness. I have some new information about Steve. It's, it's what? Warner shook his head. It can wait. What can wait? You obviously came over here to tell me something. She fought to keep from shouting. This isn't the best time to talk about it, but I don't want you to hear it from someone else first. Hear what? She hugged her arms around her waist. The fern nestled in the bay window reached out to her, still clinging to life. It was Steve's. All the plants were. Whenever he was overseas, they suffered greatly from her benign neglect. Well, he cleared his throat, turning toward her, the pain in his face hardening. Our people on the ground in Georgia say that Steve was meeting an asset at the cafe when the bomb went off. And? Maggie snatched pearl earrings off the counter, fumbling to put them on. That's exactly what you told me three days ago. I know. Warner conceded, but now we have another source confirming the original report. Who? I can't tell you that. She rubbed her forehead and stared at him. I don't know, Maggie. None of this makes sense. Steve's tradecraft was exemplary. Normally, he'd never meet an asset in a public place, especially not a Chechen. A Chechen? She knew Chechnya well from her time as a CIA analyst, a Russian province that bordered Georgia to the northeast. It was home to both radical Muslim terrorists and innocent civilians decimated by two recent wars with Russia. As far as Maggie knew, Steve's mission was to cultivate ties with Georgia's intelligence agencies and recruit Russian spies who strutted around Georgia as if they owned the place. Since when has he recruited Chechens? Warner pulled a stool up to the Granite Island. He sat, smoothing the pleat in his crisp black pants. That's not really important. It's this new information that has me worried. He folded and unfolded his hands, finally placing them on the counter. It may be a very serious matter. Maggie flinched. What? Steve may have been selling information to Russia. She stared. Steve was an Eagle Scout, honest to a fault. And he was the most loyal man she'd ever met. At this point, it's still just a rumor from this new unvetted source. Warner shook his head, but this is Steve we're talking about. He wouldn't get involved with the Russians, not without authorization. I don't know why. Is it true? She interrupted, her voice barely a whisper. Warner's brow creased. I'm not sure. Maggie's skin burned as if she'd been shocked. Why won't you tell me who your source is? 
I told you I can't reveal that. Not even to you. He straightened himself on the stool. There will be a thorough investigation, and of course, I will keep you informed of any developments. His suddenly impersonal tone startled her. What exactly are you saying, Warner? That I'm supposed to wait for some bureaucrats to decide whether my fiance was a traitor or not? She shook her head. No, you will not shut me out of this process. Clear me into whatever classified programs you have to. I want, no, I need to be part of the investigation. Even if I could. You're too emotionally involved to handle. Emotionally involved? Really? Her voice rose over the screech of the kettle. We were supposed to get married, in April, in case you forgot. She choked on a sob. There has to be something else going on here. There has to be. Warner stood and reached around her to shut off the burner. I'm in this with you, Maggie. Whatever it takes, we'll find the truth. We will find who killed Steve. The kettle's whistle gave a final dying gasp, and the house fell silent for a moment. Warner checked his watch. I'm headed to the funeral home. Let me drive you. No, I'm okay. She felt gutted as if her core had been ripped out. You shouldn't have to do this alone. He touched her lightly on the arm. She placed her hand over his and lingered for a moment before pulling away. He was right, she shouldn't be alone, but she was, because Steve was dead. I'm, no, it'll be fine. I promise not to do anything stupid. No motorcycle. They smiled. That was crazy, Maggie. Yeah, Steve was pretty freaked out. He and Warner had been working late one Friday night when she decided to bring them Chinese takeout. The look on his face when you pulled up on his precious motorcycle. Warner laughed. I know, he, she shook her head. I wish I'd had a camera. Fresh tears sprung to her eyes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Please, let me drive you to the wake. She waved a hand at him. No, really, it's okay, I promise. Warner nodded. I'll show myself out then. He locked eyes with her. See you in a bit. He smiled weakly, then left her alone in the middle of the kitchen. Forcing herself to move, she shuffled into the powder room. The mirror above the sink painted an unflattering picture. Mascara trails lined the puffy skin under her eyes, and angry blotches jostled for space between the freckles on her cheeks. Her hand trembling, she smoothed on more makeup, a mask to cover the pain. Her hair was frizzing from the incessant drizzle and accompanying cold fog outside. She didn't care. I don't think I can do this she said to her grim reflection. Back in the kitchen, it took only a minute to down three healthy shots of vodka. It was Steve's vodka from Russia. He would understand. Warmth flowed through her. That's better. Maybe she could do it after all. She could stand up and tell the world that Steve was no traitor, that he hadn't betrayed her, 
She straightened her dress, ready, she thought, for the worst night of her life. As she reached for her purse, the phone rang again. There was no one she wanted to talk to, but what if her mom had been trying to reach her? She was the only one who regularly called her home phone. Miss Jenkins. His accent was thick. Yes? I'm a friend from overseas. I want to extend my condolences about your fiance. We never meant for it to end up this way. The pounding in her ears made it impossible not to shout, who is this? Steve was of great assistance to us. We want to repay him for his efforts in whatever way we can. Maggie steadied herself against the refrigerator door. Who is this? She repeated. There will be rumors. We will deny every one of them. Help you keep his memory clean. He was a good man. The caller paused. And Miss Jenkins, you may call me Ivan Nick. The name garbled into a word salad. Who? What name did you? Too late. The line went dead. Chapter three. At 6.45 p.m., Maggie slipped through the door into the Hutchinson funeral home. The scent and sight of flowers assaulted her from every angle, from rose-filled vases lining the entryway tables to floral balloon drapes that appeared to blossom from the verdant green walls. A funeral home employee smiled from behind the reception desk, offering to take her coat and umbrella. Thanks. She handed him her things and twisted her engagement ring. He peered over his glasses. Which service are you here for? Steve Riders. Her breath caught. I'm his widow. Well, not quite, but um, he was my fiance. And a traitor? Where was Warner? She glanced around. Maybe he knew someone named Ivan Nick something or other whatever the name was. I'm very sorry for your loss, the man said, interrupting her thoughts, right this way. He ushered her down a corridor along a thickly padded cream-colored carpet to the visitation room on the left. The open casket lay straight ahead, solitary before a row of empty wooden chairs. Splendid flowers fanned around the mahogany coffin bearing the body, Steve's body. Maggie, a hand touched her shoulder. Mom, she whirled around and clung to her mother. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. Colleen Jenkins pulled away and wiped tears from her daughter's cheeks. He loved you so, so much. Mom, Maggie whispered, what am I supposed to do now? I don't know, but I'm here, I'll help you. Nobody could help her. Nobody could make this right again, not even her mother. She glanced toward the casket, then looked back over her mother's shoulder. Where's dad? Maggie hadn't expected him to show up, but some small part of her always held out hope that he'd do the right thing. It was an absurd hope, really. He always disappointed. Whiskey had become his priority when she was in junior high. Then women, 
Over the years, he'd walked out on them several times, but her mother always let him come crawling back. Each time, Maggie hoped that things would be different. Each time, it was worse. Oh, honey, he wasn't feeling well. He wanted to be here, but whatever, Mom. She was glad he hadn't shown. Steve would be, too. He'd always said that the more energy she devoted to trying to understand her derelict father, the more miserable she became. Let him go, Maggie. He'll never be the father you deserve. How right he was. You ready? Colleen Jenkins asked. No. We should go in. You need to see Steve. To say goodbye. Before people get here. Her mother clutched her hand and led her into the reception room. Maggie placed her purse next to a guest book on a table just inside the entrance. Her heart thrummed so strongly, she felt the vibration in her throat. A dark haze clouded her peripheral vision. Take a deep breath, I'm right here. It was exactly what her mom used to say when Maggie woke up gasping for air after a vivid nightmare. If only she could be that child again, the horrible dreams forgotten by morning. She exhaled through pursed lips. The 15 feet to the coffin might as well have been 20 miles. Each step took tremendous physical effort, as if her feet were encased in concrete. A tiny voice in her head whispered, maybe it's not him, maybe they're wrong. Her mother released her hand and looped her arm through Maggie's, gently tugging her forward the final few feet. He's so pale, Mom. Maggie lowered herself onto the cushioned kneeler set in front of the coffin, eyes squeezed shut. Next to her, she could sense her mother making the sign of the cross. After a brief prayer, her mother placed a soft kiss on her cheek and slipped away giving Maggie final moments alone with the love of her life. Maggie forced her eyes open. He looked like a reproduction, a mannequin, not the real Steve. His dark, wavy hair appeared immobile, weighed down by too much hairspray. Those dimples, the ones that were always there, even when he smiled in his sleep, were gone. There'd never be that hint of mischief in his eyes again. He looked fake, not dead. His face and hands showed no sign of the trauma he'd been through. But she knew that underneath the dark suit lay his annihilated body. As much as she wanted to, Maggie couldn't touch him, afraid he'd be too cold. She swayed on the kneeler. Please, God, no. The words from old familiar prayers refused to come and comfort her. She ached for another drink as she heard mourners filtering into the hall outside the visitation room, their conversations muffled by soft music and dim lights. I love you, she said, her trembling hand hovering over Steve's cheek. This was it, the final time she'd be alone with him. Only... He was already gone. Her chest heaved as she silently wept. Maggie roamed, dazed, from one group of friends and strangers to the next. 
Their words of condolence tumbled inside her head like grains of sand tossed by ocean waves. She recognized people, but their names eluded her. Every breath was an effort, every exhale a fight against the crushing pressure on her chest. When she closed her eyes, Steve was right there, smiling, head tilted just so. Maggie! At the sound of her name, she extracted herself from the awkward embrace of yet another of Steve's relatives. New York Congressman Richard Carvelli had just made his grand entrance. What the hell was he doing here? He shook off his entourage and approached her. Maggie, Maggie, I'm so terribly sorry, he said without a hint of sincerity. If there's anything I can do, please let me know. He glanced around and spoke louder. I fully intend to press the government for the truth. You, and indeed all Steve's loved ones, deserve to know exactly what happened to this brave young American. If you'll excuse me, Congressman. She turned her back, not caring how rude she appeared. Richard Carvelli had earned her contempt. It was beyond her how a man like him, with his primal lust for the camera and serial womanizing, had wormed his way onto the intelligence committee. I've been looking for you, dear, a voice said, pulling Maggie from her thoughts. Her once future mother-in-law, resplendent in a tailored black suit and expertly coiffed hair, dabbed at swollen eyes. Mrs. Ryder, she hugged her, this woman she hardly knew. Steve's parents had been disappointed, to say the least, about his career choice. Riders were not spies. They were law firm partners, CEOs, Wall Street barons. I always knew it would come to no good. This crazy job, spies and terrorists and such, she choked. Maggie made small talk, then excused herself and fled into the hall, collapsing in a paisley wing chair. She closed her eyes and saw Steve's face, the broad smile. Everything ached. Maggie? The voice sounded familiar. She peered through her lashes. Yes? It's me, Peter. It took a moment to place the tall blonde with ice blue eyes. It had been over three years since their one and only date. Of course, Peter. She stood, tugging the dress back in place over her slim hips. I'm sorry, it's been a rough week, she explained. The understatement of my life. Her date with Peter had been at a party, the same party where she'd met Steve. I was the first one at the scene. Maggie's pulse quickened. You were in Georgia? With Steve? Steve and Peter Belikov had been in the same cohort at the farm, the CIA's not-so-secret training facility located a few hours southeast of Washington, D.C. Yeah, he nodded. We were the only two case officers in the Tbilisi station. His gaze swept the length of her body. He couldn't wait to get home to see you. Her face grew hot. Peter hesitated only a moment before pulling her into an awkward hug. I flew back with his body, so we wouldn't be alone. Thank you, she whispered into his broad chest. 
I'm so sorry. Maggie pulled away. What happened, Peter? I don't know exactly. I identified the bod, I mean, Steve. Peter's face went blurry before her. She blinked furiously. He glanced around and lowered his voice. I asked the Georgian security service to let me see his asset's body, but they told me there were so many body parts from so many people that they were still trying to sort everything out. A swell of nausea rippled through Maggie's midsection. You okay? She focused on a spot on the rug and silently counted to 10. I'm sorry, Maggie. I shouldn't be telling you all this. Why did he meet this asset at a cafe? She asked, raising her head to look at Peter, her eyes challenging him. I thought those sorts of things happened in less public locations. Peter shrugged. I wish I knew. He was acting so. I see you've met Peter, Warner's voice boomed. Mr. Thompson, Peter nodded. I was just telling Maggie about how much Steve was looking forward to coming home. Warner ignored him. You okay? He rubbed her shoulder. Her adrenaline surged with the desire to get more information from Peter. Yeah, I'm fine. You should be in there, Maggie. Warner nodded toward the casket with Steve. Several people stood in the visitation room, shifting their feet as if uncertain how long they should stand before the body. Come on, I'll go with you. He led her away without a glance back at Peter. She leaned in, whispering, I need to talk to you. About? I got a phone call from some, she clutched his suit jacket. Warner, someone called from down the hall. Congressman Nelson, good evening, Warner replied, then lowered his voice to Maggie. He left me a message earlier, wanting to know what happened to Steve. But Warner, I'll see you tomorrow. He planted a kiss on her forehead. She watched him stride away to shake the Intelligence Committee chairman's hand. Her ultimate boss, Congressman Nelson seemed to be a decent man, but his presence felt intrusive. Before this week, had he even known that she was engaged to a CIA officer? She should probably thank him for coming, but the effort seemed too much. Maggie scanned the funeral home's large central room, where dozens of people sipped bottled water and nibbled on cheese and crackers, at the far side of the room, just beyond a gaggle of dark-suited men, Peter and Richard Carvelli were engaged in what looked like a heated discussion. Peter towered over the congressman, but Carvelli was right in the younger man's face. In response, Peter jabbed a finger into the congressman's chest. Maggie, there you are. Her mother nodded toward the visitation room. Some more people just arrived. You should be in there to greet them. Maggie swayed, fatigue permeating every inch of her body. But she dutifully followed her mother. Honey, your purse. A black clutch purse dangled from her mother's fingers. You left it next to the guest book. Better check that everything is intact. She nodded, but her mother had moved ahead to thank people for coming. 
Maggie slipped the purse strap around her wrist and steeled herself for more condolences from people she hardly knew. When finally, the flow of well-wishers slowed, Maggie slid into an empty chair in the visitation room. She stared unblinking at Steve's face. There was no way forward without him. With trembling fingers, she tugged at the clasp on her purse. She needed to hear his voice. The last message he'd left her was still on her voicemail. As she pulled out her phone, a sheet of paper embossed with the funeral home's insignia fluttered onto her lap. The words leapt from the page. They're not telling you the whole story, Peter. Chapter Four. Maggie shuffled over to the kitchen table Friday morning, a tattered pink terrycloth robe hanging limply on her shoulders. She'd slept fitfully, dreaming of Steve, explosions, and blood. I'm going to find out what happened to Steve. The truth, Mom. Her mother raised an eyebrow from the other side of the counter. You already know what happened. She flipped an egg, keeping her concerned gaze trained on her daughter. I don't know the whole story. I need to talk to Warner before the funeral. That reminds me, he called a little while ago to see how you were doing. She slipped a dish onto the table. Toast and eggs, over easy, your favorite. Maggie nodded at the food. You didn't have to do this. She forced down a bite. Coffee? She nodded. You need your strength, honey. Colleen Jenkins was already showered and dressed in a smart black skirt and blazer. Her auburn hair was pulled into a bun, secured with the vintage chignon cap she'd worn to every wedding and funeral Maggie could remember. I meant to ask if you looked into having a priest at the funeral. Maggie lowered the fork. Mom, you know Steve's family is Episcopalian. Well, that hasn't stopped me from praying the rosary for him. Fabulous. Steve's mother had balked at their plans for a Catholic wedding. Pushing for a priest to help officiate her son's funeral wasn't a battle worth waging. Maggie stared out the window. Wispy clouds streaked across a crisp blue sky. No doubt she and Steve would have gone for a run before breakfast. She sipped the coffee its warmth softening the lump that was crowding her throat. So, Dad, why didn't he come? Her mother feigned confusion. What? Maggie wrapped her fingers around the mug. The sun through the window glinted off her engagement diamond. Oh, her mother smiled tentatively. She sat across from Maggie. I told you he wasn't feeling well. Maggie pulled her hair back, twisting it into a loose makeshift knot. It held briefly before the curls broke free. He couldn't pull it together for me? Your father is a complicated man. Maggie ignored her and set to work on the breakfast dishes. She scrubbed a plate that needed only a light rinse, banged the silverware drawer shut, and absentmindedly rooted around in the refrigerator. I'll finish cleaning. Her mother took Maggie's hand from the fridge handle and closed the door. 
You have to get ready. Mom? Her voice cracked. What am I going to do? Colleen Jenkins put both hands on her daughter's arms. Come home. I'm 28 years old, she protested, even though the idea of letting her mom take care of her was appealing. You'll always be my little girl. Maggie offered a half-hearted smile. I know. Maybe she could go home, just for a while until she figured out what to do. Your father and I would be so happy to have you back. That was all it took to snap the spell. Move home? Hell no. She loved working in the intelligence world, making sense out of obscure information, advising policymakers on threats to national security. What she did actually mattered. And more importantly, there was Steve. He would have been horrified at the thought of her moving back to Boston. Your dad's toxic, Maggie. Stay away. You know I'd do anything for you, Mom. But my life is here, and even though I have no- Her throat ran out of air, so she took a breath. No idea how I'll survive without Steve. I can't run away from everything that's happened. How can being alone be better than being home? Maggie inhaled deeply. She was so tired, so empty. I needed to start fresh, on my own. But Steve is gone. You're going to need a support system. Your aunt works at that big financial firm in Boston, remember? She could find you a steady position of some kind. Your bedroom is there just the way you left it. And you'd have your high school and college friends. Maybe you could meet a man and settle down. Settle down? With Steve's body still above ground, her mother was talking like this? That's precisely what Steve and I were planning to do, Mom. She waved her engagement ring before her mother's eyes, ready to pounce should she utter another insensitive word. Her mother blanched. Look, I- The doorbell rang. Her mother jumped at the chance to change the subject. Maybe it's the florist again. The townhouse was becoming overrun with flowers, intermingling scents, saturating every room. She scurried off to answer the door. More flowers? As if they could fix anything. Chapter Five As we lay Stephen, our beloved son and friend, to rest, the minister intoned, his voice as dull as the wispy gray morning clouds hovering over the cemetery. Maggie bit down on the inside of her cheek to keep her lips from trembling. To her right, Warner stood erect, not moving a muscle, eyes transfixed on Steve's casket. He looked suddenly older, weary. She wanted to tell him it was okay, that Steve had died doing a job he loved. But it wasn't okay, and she didn't have the strength to hold up anyone else when she was so close to collapse herself. She tried to focus on the minister. As he praised Steve's devotion to country and dedication to the war on terror, her every nerve screamed. He was so much more than a hero, a label thrown around too loosely these days. Steve was patience and love. Every time she pushed him away, 
Not trusting his love, he waited, reassured her, and he stayed. He stayed when it would have been so easy for him to go. I don't deserve you, she'd said after the last fight. She had started it. She usually did. He'd wanted to go for a solo motorcycle ride the weekend before his latest overseas deployment. Maggie had assumed he wanted to get away from her. No, he'd explained. What he needed was time to prepare for their goodbye. He loved his job, but he didn't want to leave her. This deployment would be the last, he promised that night, as they lay curled together under a soft blanket. And it was his last, just not the way they'd imagined. Several dozen mourners stood as one, huddled together against the cold November wind. They formed a grim semicircle around the gaping hole in the ground that enveloped Steve's casket. Clumps of damp soil slid in, landing on the gleaming wood as if they too were ready for their ultimate resting place. As the minister spoke, Colleen Jenkins tugged on her daughter's coat. Who's that girl? She whispered. Who? Maggie strained her neck to look past her. I saw someone behind the tree over there. There was no one. She returned her attention to the ceremony. It was time to place her rose on Steve's casket. She approached and dropped the perfect red bloom. It landed with an almost imperceptible poof. The minister said a closing prayer and it was all over with a final amen. A few stray pebbles plinked off the top of the gleaming casket. Maggie stared into the hole, oblivious to the gust of wind that swirled her hair into a mad dance. She knelt. The damp ground penetrated her black stockings. It would be so easy to lie down next to him, right here in the cemetery. Just lie down and die. Honey, her mom called. Maggie took in the gravestones all around her. This was it, really the end. She whispered a final, I love you, stood, and joined her mother. They walked together in silence until Maggie spotted Priscilla, Warner's secretary. Be right back, Mom. She hurried over to the petite older woman. Maggie, dear, I'm so sorry. Steve was such a nice young man. Thank you. The words seemed so inadequate, but what else could she say? Warner is just crushed. I shouldn't leave my mother waiting. Of course, dear, I won't keep you. But there was something. What was it? Oh, yes, Peter Belikov asked me to send his regrets. He was ordered back to Tbilisi late last night. By who? Well, Warner, of course. Of course. Thanks, Priscilla. She gave a weak smile. You take care of yourself, Maggie. Let me know if there's anything you need. She nodded, already tiring of all the vague offers of help and support. There was nothing anyone could do for her, short of bringing Steve back to life. The wind grew steadier as mourners filed toward the parking lot. Maggie's heels, sensible though they were, sank into the grass with every step. Ahead, she noticed Warner and Congressman Carvelli engaged in conversation. 
They'd been classmates at Yale. She got the impression that Warner merely tolerated Carvelli on a professional level and hardly at all on a personal one. Maggie, a slight blonde was scurrying across the cemetery parking lot, waving her hand. Kate, Maggie hadn't noticed her at the church. I'm so sorry about Steve. Kate Johnson's enormous brown eyes filled with tears. You were so perfect together. I always knew he was the one for you. It was true. Kate had seen the way Steve looked at Maggie. After they'd been dating for only a month, Kate had predicted a wedding. I miss him so much already. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Kate wrapped her arms around her. Just be, one breath at a time. Maggie sniffed. I'll try. She pulled away. Can you come by the house for a bite to eat? All these people going? Kate's gaze flitted around the parking lot. Yeah, some of them. Kate glanced around again. Actually, I was hoping we could have lunch, maybe tomorrow. My mother has a morning flight to Boston. Kate shoved her hands into her coat pockets and whispered at the ground. I really have to talk to you. I guess. After the airport, I could meet you somewhere close to your place, Maggie offered. Let's stick with Tyson's Corner. Shopping malls are safe. Safe? Kate turned and called over her shoulder. Meet me outside Macy's, 11 o'clock. Maggie watched her friend rush away. Odd. Just like the note that Peter had left in her purse. Why all this secrecy? Her head pounded. Trying to make sense of anything was impossible. Maybe in a few days she'd be able to think straight. Across the parking lot, her mother stood next to the black funeral home sedan that had picked them up this morning. She motioned for Maggie to rejoin her. That's the young lady I saw over by the tree. Who is she? Her mother asked as the driver opened the rear passenger door. Remember my old roommate, Kate? She slid into the back seat. Eight years ago, she and Kate Johnson had met as CIA college interns, Instant friends, they'd shared an apartment until three years ago, when they both left the CIA, Kate for the National Security Agency, and Maggie for Capitol Hill. Kate? Her mother searched her memory. I can't seem to remember her. Is she always such a nervous type? Chapter Six Saturday was gloomy, the kind of day where the sun surrenders to the clouds at dawn. At 11 a.m. sharp, Maggie stood outside the lower level entrance to Macy's. The last time she'd been here was with Steve, to finalize their wedding registry. It had taken nearly an hour to convince him that they would, in fact, need a bread maker and a waffle iron. He'd conceded knowing full well that given Maggie's lack of domesticity, he'd be the only one to use them. She swallowed and stared up at the red star in the store's logo. Everything felt so difficult, even lunch with an old friend. There was no sign of Kate yet. Maggie tugged on the heavy glass doors and slipped inside. 
As she turned to head for the shoe department, a woman stepped into the aisle in front of her, holding an armful of clothes. It was Kate. Meet me in that dressing room over there, she said, nodding to the right. Maggie grabbed a half dozen denim ruffle miniskirts from the rack. I thought we would get some lunch. Didn't know we were going to shop, she called out, following her friend. Kate tugged her down to the dressing stall in the corner. I need to talk to you. It's really important. Several blouses escaped her grip. With a shaking hand, she snatched them from the floor. Maggie followed Kate into the cramped mirrored room and held up a skirt with sassy bedazzled across the back. Am I supposed to wear this get up to work? Kate shrugged without even glancing at the skirt. Sure. She stuck her head outside the dressing room again. Are you in some kind of trouble, Kate? Not yet. The fluorescent lights made Maggie's hair look brassy, her skin sallow. What's going on? Kate sat on a narrow bench, clutching the clothes in her arms. This is probably the last thing you need to hear, and I'm not sure if it's relevant or not, but here goes. She exhaled sharply. I saw a cable that I think maybe might have something to do with Steve. She could muster only one word in reply. What? The cable crossed my desk on Tuesday. It references a terrorist attack in Tbilisi. Maggie's pulse quickened. The one that killed Steve? Yes, but it's more than that. More than what, Kate? Maggie's friend stiffened and looked up at the ceiling. Oh no, they have cameras in here, don't they? Probably, but I'm not planning on stealing anything, are you? Kate was acting crazy. She snatched her purse and bolted to a stand. The dresses she held fell into a clattering pile of hangers and wool. Let's go, we've been here too long. Kate? We should keep moving. The Rainforest Cafe, it's loud in there. She peered out the door, come on. Maggie struggled to keep up with her diminutive friend as she wove a furious path through a maze of clothing racks. When she ducked to avoid a sales clerk's pungent perfume attack, she lost sight of Kate. But moments later, she spied her blonde hair bobbing through belts, purses, and hosiery. This is absurd. Kate was waiting for her near Macy's entrance to the mall. Meet me in five minutes. I'll be sitting behind the giant elephant. What? What elephant? Kate shot her a look. Trust me, you can't miss it. She waited until Kate disappeared from view, then walked slowly toward the restaurant. Lunchtime on a Saturday, the place would be teeming with squealing children and pulsating with jungle sounds. A headache would surely follow. Maggie found Kate at a table partially hidden by a giant elephant statue. She waited for Maggie to sit, then plunged in, picking up where she'd left off in the dressing room. On Wednesday, my supervisor told me to destroy all copies of the cable. Why? Kate shrugged. What exactly does the cable say? Maggie, Kate, look, I'm exhausted. Please just tell me, is Steve's name in it? Does it say who did it? Questions tumbled from her mouth. Steve's name isn't in it but I did some research and found no other bombings in Tbilisi last week. It has to be about him. 
Maggie frowned. So what? I'm not surprised that the NSA would pick up chatter about the death of an American overseas, are you? No, Kate conceded. But my boss said it's a criminal matter. A terrorist attack is a criminal matter. Her friend seemed to be overreacting. Maggie, this is different. She leaned across the table and lowered her voice. He said it was a criminal matter that would be handled exclusively by the FBI. Meaning? They only give the FBI exclusive jurisdiction if they suspect American involvement in a crime. Her eyes darted around to the surrounding tables. And there might be. A sudden buzzing in Maggie's ears drowned out the ambient clatter of noise. She sank against the black booth cushion. Wait, are you trying to say that an American was behind the bombing? Kate shook her head. Maggie realized she'd been holding her breath. Then what does it say? It implies that a US official might be selling intelligence to Russians. A lump formed in her throat. First, Warner's source had suggested that Steve was selling intelligence. Then there was the mysterious phone call from Ivan, who'd implied that Steve was a Russian asset. And now there was an NSA report implicating an unnamed US official. It was suddenly difficult to breathe. Maggie? Kate reached across the table and clasped her friend's hands. Are you okay? You're so pale. She waved down a waiter. Could we get some water? I don't know what's real and what's not anymore, Maggie whispered. Kate accepted two tumblers of ice water and handed one to Maggie. She sipped and inhaled deeply. If an American was selling intelligence to Russia, she'd find out who it was. It couldn't be Steve. There was no way. She'd prove it. Do you think the FBI will lock the CIA out of the investigation? If that happened, Warner would never get to the unfiltered truth. The most he'd get would be a high-level FBI summary of what had transpired in Tbilisi. Kate studied her for a moment. Apparently satisfied that Maggie wasn't going to pass out, she replied, basically, yes, no CIA or NSA involvement unless these agencies come across intelligence relevant to the investigation. In that case, these agencies will share whatever they learn about the attack at the deputies' meetings. The deputies? Deputy director level officials from various intelligence agencies, including the CIA, met monthly to discuss the most pressing intelligence issues. Warner Thompson was a regular meeting participant. Have the deputies met to talk about the attack yet? They met Thursday afternoon in Langley. She paused for a beat. And it wasn't a regularly scheduled meeting. Maggie's pulse quickened. Steve was murdered on Monday, and on Thursday, senior intelligence officials met to discuss a cable about a bombing in Tbilisi. Obviously, the NSA cable and the meeting were about Steve. Why would they hold an emergency meeting about Steve's murder? Is this something they do every time a CIA operative is killed? I can't go into it, not here. She glanced around nervously. I kept a copy of the cable for you, even though my boss told me to destroy all of them. Kate, I'll slip it to you when we leave. I hate to sound like a bad cliche, 
but you probably should destroy it after you read it. If anyone ever found out I did this, Maggie understood. Kate had directly disobeyed her boss, mishandled classified material, and provided information to someone without a need to know. She hesitated. This was a rule breaker. Kate leaned toward her. I think I'm the only one in my office who read the cable. Well, the only one if you don't count my supervisor, probably his boss, and the translator and his boss, whatever. The point is, if this cable turns up somewhere, I'm screwed. She sighed. I debated whether I should drag you into this, but when they ordered the cable yanked, alarms went off in my head. Maggie absorbed the shock waves, too stunned to speak. She finally cleared her throat. Why did the NSA recall all the copies of the cable? Intelligence agencies share sensitive information all the time. I have no idea. Warner would know. And he wouldn't allow the FBI to lock him out of the investigation. Her friend glanced around the restaurant. I should go. Just one more thing, Kate. Have you ever heard of a Russian named Ivan Nick something? Nick is the first syllable? You don't know the rest? No. He called me the night of the wake. Implied that he knew Steve. Kate lowered her head and whispered, Ivan Nikolaevich? Could be. Oh. Kate looked distressed. What is it? I've seen that name. A teenaged waiter appeared to take their order. He ogled Maggie. She ignored him. You hungry, Kate? Not really. Let's go. Maggie slapped five dollars on the table. Sorry, no lunch today. There's your tip. Kate grabbed Maggie's leather bomber jacket from the chair. Here. She walked away without another word. But Maggie slipped on the jacket. When she reached inside the right pocket, she felt an envelope. The line had just been crossed. Chapter seven. Inside the Jeep, Maggie pulled the envelope from her jacket, gently, as if it contained sacred text. She could let Warner run the official investigation, or the FBI, or whoever was in charge, or she could open the envelope and pursue the truth, no matter the consequences. The moment of indecision was brief. She tore at the envelope, frantic to bring its words to light. Top secret, sensitive compartmentalized information, TSSCI. NSA 02-7463GG. Originating Agency, National Security Agency, Fort Meade, MD. DOI, 3 November 2003, 1755Z. DIST, 4 November 2003. Country, Georgia, GG. DIST, NSA slash Fort Meade, Maryland. FM Joint Staff slash Washington, D.C. DIA slash Bowling Air Force Base slash Washington, D.C. CIA slash DDO DDI NPC CTC slash Langley, Virginia.
Subject. Suspected terrorist attack. TS slash SCI. Text. Four people were killed in a bombing in Tbilisi yesterday. Among those killed were two unidentified local women, a man named, first name unknown, Takayev, and a U.S. official, TS slash SCI. Comment. We are awaiting additional details about this apparent terrorist attack. Previous reporting indicates that FNU Takayev believed a U.S. official was selling intelligence to unidentified Russians and that Takayev himself was involved with Chechen terrorists who were trying to buy nuclear materials from the Russian mafia. The same terrorists have close ties to al-Qaeda operatives in Pakistan and Afghanistan. TS slash SCI. She squeezed her eyes tight, willing Steve to enlighten her from beyond. Who's Takayev? She whispered. Had Steve been Takayev's handler? There was only one way to find out. She dumped the insides of her purse on the passenger seat. Lipstick, coins, an MP3 player, and assorted receipts scattered. She plucked her cell phone from the mess and punched in the number. Hello? Warner, I need to see you. I'll be over in 10 minutes. What's wrong, Maggie? He sounded tired. Everything. She hung up. How could he have kept this from her? He had to have seen this cable at the last deputies meeting. Peter Belikov's words rang in her head. They're not telling you the whole story. She navigated recklessly through new developments of McMansions that had sprung up during the now defunct dot-com boom. Many residents of McLean, Virginia were transients, coming and going with the fortunes of the stock market and changes in the political winds. This formerly sleepy bedroom community was now home to wealthy lobbyists, politicians, and media moguls. Here, Old brick ramblers from the 1960s stood quietly in the shadows cast by monstrous villas squeezed onto neighboring lots. She cornered into a winding driveway. Beyond a grove of firs stood a Georgian-style colonial. A large dwelling, even by McLean standards, it was too much of a house for one person, but just enough for a man of Warner's stature. He was waiting, leaning casually against the ornately carved maple front door. From afar, with his faded jeans and Yale sweatshirt, he could have passed for a co-ed. I was just about to go into the office when you called, he said. This won't take long, she replied crisply. He waved her into the foyer, a sparsely appointed but sunlit space. He'd moved in six months ago, after his wife served him with divorce papers. To Maggie, his old house felt much more lived in, if only because of the twins, whose toys never seemed to remain in their proper places. If this is about the wake and the funeral, I'm sorry. I got busy, distracted. I didn't spend enough time with you. His eyes were moist. I should have. Maggie waved off his apology. It was impossible to measure sincerity in a person whose profession is based on deception. Why didn't you tell me about the cable? About what? The cable. Takayev. Her face grew hot.
as she fought for control of her voice. The man killed along with Steve? It seems like you know a hell of a lot more than I do. Warner crossed his arms. Where are you getting this information? You know exactly where. The NSA cable. He looked genuinely perplexed. Seriously, Warner? You're playing innocent with me? What the hell is that supposed to mean? His eyes grew steely, his tone cool. Maggie retreated, a tactical move only. I know you saw the NSA cable at the deputies' meeting. No flicker of recognition. There hasn't been a deputies' meeting since last month. That's a lie. The deputies met two days ago, an emergency meeting. Relief washed over his face, smoothing the creases in his tanned forehead. I wasn't there. I took Thursday off. You did? It was her turn for confusion. Warner put a hand on her shoulder. Come into the den. I shouldn't keep you standing here. She followed him across the foyer's bluestone floor. His den wasn't the kind of place where she pictured herself curling up with a good book. Two stiff cube-shaped chairs that looked as if they'd been forged from concrete slabs sat opposite a massive wooden desk. The walls consisted of mahogany panels that made the room feel much smaller than it was. Against the back wall was a straight-edged gray sofa with no signs of use, never mind where. There were no pictures on the walls, but a framed photo of the twins in matching dresses stood on the corner of his desk. This house was not yet a home, but perhaps Warner didn't care. Most of his life was spent at the agency anyway. I haven't seen any NSA cable. Warner sat in one of the chairs and crossed his legs. How did you get it? Maggie remained standing and drew a breath. She had to protect Kate. Wait, Warner raised his hands. Don't tell me. The less I know about that, the better off we'll all be. She shifted on her feet. You can get the cable at work, right? I bet it's sitting in your inbox. What does it say? It references a bombing in Tbilisi, so it's obviously about Steve. And it mentions a man named Takayev. I'm assuming Steve was his handler. I'm right, aren't I? He waved his arms in exasperation. I don't know off the top of my head, Maggie. I'll look into it as soon as I go to headquarters. And you'll let me know? Warner frowned, if I can. You know how this works. I can't disclose- Maggie raised a hand to stop him. Yeah, yeah, I know. Need to know trumps everything, even though I, of all people, have a need and a right to know what happened. I get it. I do. And I will tell you everything I can. She crossed her arms. What else does this cable say? Warner demanded. It claims that this Takayev guy might be involved with Chechen terrorists who are trying to buy nuclear materials from the Russian mafia. She shook her head. If Steve had known anything about that, he would have reported it, right? Yeah. But I don't remember seeing. Warner closed his eyes. A report like that would have caught my attention. Maybe there is that finding. Finding? A presidential finding? She straightened. Was Steve working on a covert operation? Warner frowned. 
I can't go into that. Maggie's mind clicked into full analytic mode. Takayev supposedly knew that a US official was selling intelligence. But that doesn't mean Steve was the one selling secrets. It could be anyone with a security clearance. The ticking of an antique grandfather clock filled the silence. Warner's voice was soft. I'm not making any assumptions about Steve yet, one way or the other. He wouldn't betray his country. Not the Steve I knew. He nodded, eyes downcast. Maggie's shoulders sagged. If Warner needed proof of Steve's innocence, she'd find it. One other thing. Who is Ivan Nikolaevich? Why are you asking? A man with a Russian accent called me the night of the wake. He said that Steve had done a lot for them and that he wanted to repay me. Warner burst out laughing, then sobered immediately. This has to be some sort of twisted prank. A prank? What? He leaned back in his chair. Ivan Nikolaevich Bukovsky is the head of Russian intelligence. I assure you, it wasn't him calling. Why would someone? Maggie bit down on the inside of her cheek. An unspoken question hung in the air between them. Who would do such a thing? The telephone on the desk trilled. Damn it, he muttered. Could you excuse me for a minute? Sure. She slipped out into the foyer. Warner's voice echoed into the hall. Wednesday is my night with the girls. He paused a moment. Let me take them to dance class then. Fine, I'll just show up. What are you going to do about it? Maggie crept closer. She knew his marriage had fallen apart, but it sounded worse than she'd imagined. He slammed down the phone. She slid back to the far side of the foyer and pretended to study the prints hung on the wall. Warner joined her a moment later. He pointed to a nightscape of the Eiffel Tower. Got that one when I was stationed in Paris. 1987, I think. He sighed, cleared his throat. I'll see what I can find out about the NSA cable and this Takayev character. In the meantime, please don't go poking around where you have no business. No business? Maggie cut him off. Steve isn't my business? Warner threw up his arms in frustration. That's not what I meant. I just don't want you getting yourself in trouble nosing around into things you're not cleared for. Just, just let me handle that side of it, okay? He closed his eyes. I need the truth myself. Warner had been more than Steve's boss. He'd been his mentor, the one who'd help him process the death of his father on 9-11, the one Steve had asked to be his best man at their wedding. I know you do, she conceded weakly. It felt like she was bleeding to death by a thousand little cuts. Every day was worse than the previous one. Not having Warner by her side would make everything that much more painful. Are you okay? I'm, I'm hanging in there. How are the girls? He flushed. I haven't seen them in weeks. He ran a hand through his hair. Shannon is making this divorce as nasty and difficult as possible. I get a phone call a day with them if I'm lucky. You need a better lawyer. Warner nodded and glanced at his watch. I have to go into the office. 
With everything that's happened, I have a lot to catch up on. I should be going to. There are thank you notes and other things I need to do. That can all wait. People will understand. His voice was subdued. But please, Maggie, I mean it. Please don't accept any more classified documents from anyone. The last thing I want to see is you in legal trouble. I won't, I promise. I'll hold you to that. He pasted on a kind smile. Come on, I'll walk you outside. Out in the driveway, she turned to wave, but Warner had already slammed the front door and was hurrying to his BMW. Promises or no promises, if Kate, or anyone else for that matter, found information on Steve, she'd be all over it. Seems like Maggie has a good reason to believe the CIA is not telling her the truth about her fiancé's death. Is Warner Thompson keeping information from her? What did Peter mean when he said, they're not telling you the whole story? And who is the mysterious Takiev mentioned in the NSA cable? Tune in to the next episode to see how Maggie decides to find her answers. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here. But subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, Listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.